It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, October 13th. We have updates in the multiple labor union strikes in the United States. And, of course, we will cover the reignition of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, starting with the atrocities on October 7th. First, the United Auto Workers and their president, Sean Fain, says that the workers will no longer notify the big three American automakers before calling additional walkouts. The UAW ramped up its walkout yesterday, shut down Ford's largest factory in Louisville, Kentucky. 8,700 members left their jobs. 34,000 workers now on strike against the big three. And Sam Park, you just watched President Fain's uh, YouTube address to the membership and I guess to the world watching um, and you're included in it. So am I. Yes, uh, I decided la- uh, after our we taped last week's episode, actually, I'm kind of regretful that I didn't, didn't think of doing this earlier, but I decided last Saturday to subscribe to the UAW YouTube channel. Uh, and I'm happy to say they don't update it every day. They only put stuff up there, you know, a couple times a week when there's developments, which is, I think, a refreshing use of the medium, let's say. Uh, but I wanted to make sure we touched on this this week because right after we stopped, literally within an hour after we finished recording last week's episode, uh, President Fain put up an address on YouTube in which he said two things. One, that there would not be any escalation at that point. This was last Friday, mind you. And that he'd reached a tentative agreement, at least, with General Motors. When that was the first time the General Motors had come to the table with any sort of offer during the strike so far, meaning that they were the last company to come to the table. Ford came first, then Stellantis, and then finally General Motors. Stellantis what, is Chrysler. Sorry, I just had to. That's right. Uh, and what General Motors put on the table again, this is provisional, right? There's no final agreement. But General Motors last week agreed to include battery plants under the national agreement with the UAW when such an agreement is reached. And this is the first uh, concession by any of the big three that directly addresses the electric vehicle market, which, as we've discussed in our previous weeks, uh, was one of the kind of thorny problems that the strike might face was how do you reconcile the demands of the UAW with the reduced need for labor involved in manufacturing electric vehicles? And so uh, this was a very significant development that we just missed when we recorded last week. Uh, So that was last week. Today, or uh, the other day, as you mentioned, 8,700 workers walked out of the uh, the Ford truck plant in Louisville, Kentucky. This is not just the largest plant for Ford. It's by far the most lucrative facility in the entire Ford factory system. Uh, it's where they make the F-150, far and away the flagship of Ford's automotive fleet. So they're really hurting Ford, hitting Ford where it hurts. We should point out that um, 
trucks and SUVs are where the United States auto makers have the best profit margins. So this is exactly, as you said, hitting them where it hurts the most. That's true. Although we should also say that uh, Ford can't meet demand fast enough for the new electric version of the F-150, the Lightning. I'm unclear in my own mind whether that whether the Lightning is also manufactured in Kentucky or not. I don't know whether or not that's true. Uh, but the, the you know, people might imagine that F-150 drivers wouldn't necessarily be the most enthusiastic adopters of electric vehicles. But so far, there's been quite a lot of demand for the electric version of the F-150, which I think is promising all the way around. Last week, uh, Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers, had pointed out that Ford's proposal included a 23% hike in pay, which is higher than the 20% offers from Stellantis Chrysler and General Motors. Um, the strike began, of course, on September 15th. Um, I also noticed, I watched some of uh, Fain's address today on your recommendation on the YouTube channel, and he had a very consistent theme of broadening labor consciousness. He had um, a hoodie on from Italian workers who were visiting. He talked about a strike at a Mack truck plant. Yes, which just happened this week also. Mack truck has a separate UAW contract, but he said that he would be visiting the Mack plant in Pennsylvania because the Mack workers just decided to also go on strike. I mean, I could go on about the UAW all day long, and we do have other <laughs> things to talk about. Uh, one thing I would say is during last week's address, he went on about some at some length about, as I said, the, the battery plants and the great progress that they've made so far. Uh, and at that point, like as you mentioned, today he was wearing the uh, hoodie from the Italian Labor Union. Last week... In his address, which, by the way, he seemed to be trying to buck up the troops. I wondered if he might be feeling some pressure from the membership because nobody wants to be on strike. Uh, And so he seemed to be giving them kind of a pep talk. At the same time, however, he was wearing a T-shirt that said, eat the rich. I did see that. (laughs) You know, as emollient as his rhetoric was, you know, there was, let's say, you know, a a subtlety of his overall messaging. Uh, but again, uh, we don't need to to uh, discuss this in, in much further detail because we're going to have to come back to it in future weeks, obviously. Kaiser Permanente and their striking 75,000 workers have reached a tentative deal. This is going down in Oakland. Uh, representatives of the company and the union met yesterday after uh, more than a week after contract talks broke off. And there, of course, was the 72-hour strike after the talks broke off. The terms of the agreement not disclosed, but higher pay and increased hiring to address what the workers have called crisis-level staffing shortages since the pandemic um, were the top demands. Um, The previous four-year contract expired on the last day of September Acting U.S. Labor Secretary uh, Julie Su was there as a mediator, yes. which is in line, uh, A, with the job, but B, with the Biden administration's um, pro-union stance. I guess maybe how can she be a mediator if her boss is so very publicly on the side of the unions, but she was there. 
Well, she is the labor secretary, you know, and but she's been, she you know, she's given one or two interviews since her involvement began, but she hasn't been effusive about it, right? She's kept everything very close to the vest, not disclosing, you know, any deals or concessions that might have been made. And so, as far as I'm aware, as of the time of this recording, we don't know the details of the deal so far. And I believe the union members would still have to vote on it. For example, it's only this week that the Writers Guild of America membership finally voted on the deal that they reached with the film and television producers, which passed the union membership vote with near unanimity. So any deal that's reached by Kaiser and their unions today would still have to be ratified by the union membership. So it's not final, but if it holds, I think it's pretty impressive. That, I mean, Kaiser was only on strike for three days uh, and uh, they seem to have brought, that is the unions were only on strike for three days and they brought Kaiser to the table in short order. There was also here locally, and I can't remember the name of the healthcare provider, but a smaller California provider also had union uh, members go on strike uh, here in our local vicinity. And so I think that uh, as President Fain of the UAW was saying, there is, you know, a, a lot of support for this sort of activity. You know, what with Mac joining the UAW strike and this other smaller healthcare company union joining the Kaiser strike, uh, I think that a lot of corporations sort of don't want to let this get out of hand because you don't, you know, if, if things keep going like this, it could be trouble for them. I also want to point out that with um, specifically the healthcare strike, there's a public relations component to that because people can get sick or need medical care, no matter what the situation of labor negotiations. And so I think it was pretty slick how the workers managed to, as you say, bring Kaiser around in short order, but also not prolong this. I think for credibility of that particular sector's workers in the larger public conversation. That was important, right? You yes, don't and want- they, we discussed this last week. The tactical approach of their of those unions was we'll, we'll strike for three days, right? So that, you know, there's some pain being felt, but it's not okay. like we're going to let people go without medical care. We're going to go back to work after three days and we'll go out for five days next month if you don't come to the table. And apparently that was all that was needed, Uh, you know, three days and the threat of an additional five days a month down the line. Uh, And Kaiser came up with an offer very quickly. Uh, And I think that's got to be encouraging to the broader union movement. In fact, President Fain discussed that just this morning. Uh, You know, again, he's not shy about, you know, tapping into a spirit of solidarity with workers in other industries, as we discussed last week. So the Kaiser Permanente workers have a tentative deal with the healthcare provider, and they, will, of course, have to vote on that and ratify the agreement. The writers, as Sam mentioned, um, have ratified their agreement with the Hollywood studios. The Writers Guild, that strike ended uh, several days ago now. But the actors, SAG-AFTRA, and the studios are nowhere near a deal. Uh, the strike's been going on since July. And in fact, the studios walked out of negotiations 
Uh, on Wednesday, the talks fell apart. They're clashing over streaming revenue. On Thursday, uh, the Netflix co-CEO said that the talks fell apart after SAG proposed what he characterized as a levy on streaming subscribers. And the studios say that proposal from the actors would cost them $800 million a year. Um, Fran Drescher, who is, of course, the SAG after president, said that was an inflated price for the benefit of the press. The proposal factors out to about 57 cents per year per subscriber. She said that's less than a postage stamp. Um, SAG after said in a letter to members yesterday, it was negotiating in good faith with the studios, despite the fact that last week they the studios presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than what they proposed before the strike began. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if that is, that reflects poorly on the studios. Yes. And as we talked about uh, last week, right, some some of the executives of these companies don't seem to get the memo. Right. Uh, My base salary is only two million. Yeah. You know, uh, it's like, okay, this is going to cost even for instance, even if the the studios estimate is correct, eight hundred million dollars. Now, that's a lot of money. Right. But aggregated across the the uh, the entertainment industry. You know, you can make that up. Right. Uh, when I read it was Netflix co-CEO, this is in the uh, Hollywood Reporter, by the way, is where right. the interview with Fran Drescher is, is a good read. Um, I just thought, oh, man, the Netflix co-CEO saying anything is going to be entertaining or at minimum, just like you're ready for him to say something completely um out of touch with reality. Now, again, right. I don't you, know. Have, you can almost imagine him sitting there going, it's going to cost $800 million. You know, right. just, I mean, yeah. not, not just that. It's just like, how many CEOs does Netflix need? Right. How many highly exactly. paid executives do there have to be? Right. Uh, they don't ship goods. Right. Anymore. They don't but, memorize lines. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, how many of these people need to be making these decisions? Now it's it's a fair number, mind you, but do, does any company need a, a CEO and a co CEO? Right? Uh, you want to talk about inflation? Yeah, I, I have all sorts of thoughts on management within media companies that I will refrain from offering because we're still trying to be objective here. Yes, um, that's right. But just having worked for media entities in Los Angeles, there are never any shortage of. Um, um, redundant management positions i would just i'll say. be happy yeah. to take your word for that <laughs> yeah. john yes you will very uh, happy mind you um anything else you want to touch on on the labor front because we're going to do a hard pivot away and i know the united auto worker sean fain is is kind of a fun character to kick around and obviously like hollywood strikes are inherently kind of light-hearted um but before we get into Israel Palestine, we no, I think we should it. probably move move right along because as as we've mentioned, we'll have occasion to return to labor action in future episodes. It's, it seems that that's going to be an ongoing phenomenon in our society for some time to come. So we can anything that we've missed, we can make up for later. The Hamas-Israel war, the latest, Israel's military has ordered hundreds of thousands of civilians living in Gaza City to evacuate. That order coming today ahead of what is anticipated to be an all-out invasion by the Israeli military of the Gaza Strip. Um, that comes right after the United Nations said was a warning they received from Israel to evacuate over a million people living 
in northern Gaza within the next 24 hours. This is the latest military action taken by Israel in response to the events of October 7th, last Saturday, um, what has been called by Hamas, the ruling entity of the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian territory near the Sinai Peninsula in the southern part of Israel. Hamas launched Operation Al-Aqsa on Saturday, October 7th, coordinated attacks from the Gaza Strip into bordering areas of Israel. Over 900 Israeli civilians were killed. 260 were slaughtered at a music festival, and this started this reignition of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which at the time of this taping on Friday, October 13th, has claimed almost 3,000 lives. Hamas sent 3,000 missiles against Israel on the 7th of October. Uh, Militants breached the Gaza-Israel barrier, attacking military bases, slaughtering civilians. We mentioned the music festival. There were a series of atrocities. And since then, Israel has essentially resolved to pound the Gaza Strip. There have been days of airstrikes. In addition, there have been reports of crackdowns in other Palestinian Mm -hmm. neighborhoods and districts um, throughout Israel. And the West Um, Bank, that's right. Yeah, the West Bank specifically. Um, So we have something like an all-out war with a ground invasion apparently about to begin. Hezbollah, which is a Shia militant group backed by Iran, launched uh, rockets and shells into the uh, north of Israel from Lebanon. Hezbollah is a Lebanese Shia militia. But backed by Iran, excuse me. Yes. Anyway, there are a lot of moving parts. And if you don't keep up with the involved players, it can be a lot to sort out. And Sam, before we even get into the latest discussion about all all the details here, I almost feel like we have to have a discussion about how are we supposed to talk about this? Because I think you understand this. I'm pretty sure you feel this way. It is impossible to have any critique of either the Palestinians or the Israelis without being fear of being misinterpreted as either uh, pro-colonialist or anti-Semitic. And I was thinking about your story, and I know that you know we don't like to focus on our biographies as part of the news here, but your, your story in particular is really interesting here, right? Because your dad was an immigrant from Korea. He knows all about colonialism, or he knew all about colonialism, and you heard about it from him. And your mom is Jewish. so her, Her father was Jewish. So you sit astride, kind of both competing, I would say, overreaching narratives that that people kind of fall into traps when they talk about this. Am I out of line? I wouldn't say you're out of line. I think you might be overstating things a little bit. I don't know much about any of these things. For instance, as you mentioned, my father grew up under Japanese occupation uh, for the first 15 years of his life in Korea. Uh, he seldom talked about it. So I know very little bit about it. My grandfather was Jewish. He was not an especially observant Jew, uh, and in fact, 
married a Gentile. Uh, and my mother was not raised with inside of the Jewish faith in any... Sorry, that's my error. So in my background, sure. But I, honestly, I feel as though I address these things mainly as an outside observer on an intellectual level more than anything else. So I don't especially think that I have any kind of real insight about this. But I would say, John, that you've really touched on something very important here, is that it is extraordinarily difficult to even uh, understand how to discuss these issues. And so I think we might spend a little bit of time just sort of setting some basic parameters for okay, this. Okay, great. So uh, Oh, for instance, ahead. we, for many years, we've heard people use the phrase, and many, many different people from different backgrounds and different perspectives, peace in the Middle East. Peace in the Middle East is something that we just very broadly say and believe that we would like to see. Well, that's not going to work out for us very well in the foreseeable future. And so... For those of us who'd say that, and again, people have very different ideas of what they think that peace might look like. But anybody who says that they would like to see peace in the Middle East, they're out of luck right now. And that's not going to be a factor in the near term, at least, and probably for a while. So if that's what you want to see, you are today reduced to what kind of contours of the war would I prefer to see? And I don't know about you, John, that's deeply unsatisfactory to me. Okay, I, that's not something that I care to go into in any depth. Now, we might have to, mind you, but uh, it's just at a bare minimum distasteful. I think there would be many Israelis today who would and in fact are saying, no country has any business telling us today what our response to this ought to be. Uh, and I would find it very difficult to, and not just difficult, but again, distasteful to even try to argue against that position. You know, some people, I mean, I'm, and I'm glad that people have moved off of this construction. But for a couple of days, people were saying, this is Israel's 9-11. Uh, and to at this point, we'd have to say, yeah, if only, right? It's so much worse than that. Uh, and uh, and again, people have stopped saying that by now, right? For a couple of days, that's what people were going with. And Secretary I think that, of State Blinken said it's much worse than that. It's so much worse. It's orders of magnitude worse. And for that matter, uh, Israel... I mean, again, I've never, I've even traveled there, let much less live there, right? Or even identify, right, uh, as a Jewish person myself, despite whatever ancestry I might have. I, I mean, I think that there are probably Israelis who are hoping that the whatever response they mount to this ends up better for Israel than the American response ended up being for to nine eleven, ended up being for the United States, because I think there's very broad agreement in our country, that our response to 9-11 didn't really end up very well for us, never mind for the very unfortunate people in the countries involved in our response. As annoying or 
whatever word you want to use it is to be seeming to have this kind of meta discussion of the phenomena i don't really feel i have much leg to stand on in in saying what you know should be happening instead right. of what is happening as horrific as it is mind you and it is just awful and i'm so no, i don't want to say glad john but it's entirely appropriate that in the intro to today's show you use the word atrocities right because that is what hamas yes. did okay the acts that they committed last saturday there's no other way to describe these things and uh again thank you i'm grateful to you for for using that word without any hesitation can we contextualize or acknowledge problematic elements of israeli policy towards the palestinians throughout history and remain not anti-Semitic? I would hope so. If any other country had experienced anything like this, uh, nobody, nobody in any other country that had gone through something like this would even listen for a moment to somebody who was telling them what their response should be like. All right. And okay. if we don't acknowledge that, we're not having a serious conversation. Okay, but I would also say that if we can't talk about the 16-year blockade of Gaza, we're also not having a serious conversation. Okay. All right. Exactly. Right. So you you can criticize Israeli policy and not be fundamentally or inherently anti-Semitic. But I also want to say you can acknowledge Israel's right to exist and not be a colonizer, right? I think so, yes. Right. Okay. For instance, I think Israelis might also say, look, uh, more UN resolutions are passed uh, condemning our country than all other countries in the world combined, right? Is our human rights record actually so much worse than those of other countries? No, it is not, all right? Uh, on top of that, the only reason our country exists is because the so-called international community failed to help us when the Nazis were trying to wipe us out. Even after the war, we were generally not allowed to return to the homes that had been stolen from us under Nazi occupation in any of the countries of Europe. And so if what we do flies in the face of what the international community wants, that's too bad for them. Okay. Mind you, though, uh, again, if we're not going to talk about the blockade and the occupation, we're not having a serious conversation. And it's not just that I think that. Right. There are Israeli soldiers who are reporting to the front right now uh, who will stop to tell international reporters, this is on the government. All right. Uh, this is on Netanyahu and his government because of a number of different policies that they've been pursuing since they've been in power recently. Now, we can discuss those policies if you would like, but that's not the point I'm making, which is that Israelis feel perfectly comfortable criticizing their own leadership as being responsible for this attack by Hamas. 
that's much more their business than it is ours. And so I'm happy to let them have that discussion instead of us. For that matter, there are people inside the Israeli military who have said that this situation in Gaza and the West Bank is not sustainable. Uh, and they're very willing to use words like apartheid. These are Israeli military officials. I don't need to say these things. They're saying them. Uh, and now, mind you, I'm confident that there are other people inside the Israeli military who don't agree with that. All right? And we, we probably don't hear as much from them. They might not be as anxious to talk to the media as their more uh as their counterparts whom i've just quoted so i don't this is certainly not the universal view of the uh israeli military but the point being that uh we tend to i think on our side of the ocean uh not really have a good understanding of these things and so we easily fall into these kind of silos uh that don't really have a detailed enough view of what's actually going on. All right, I think that if you listen to the the commentary from people who live in Israel, which thankfully, uh, thanks to our media environment, we can do very easily. We can listen to people on all sides of you know across the Israeli political political spectrum and hear what they're saying about it, which has been fascinating to me because there are many different views of this that you can watch anytime you want. So uh, again, we don't want to use the 9-11 metaphor for the atrocities, but we can use it to inform our audience about how to think and maybe consider criticisms or just the tone of certain aspects like telling Israelis how they ought to respond after this, right? Nobody after 9-11, we did not know each other uh, for 9-11 here, Sam, but I am confident you will agree with me that no intellectually honest person in the United States in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 thought there wasn't a larger context for those attacks that very much centered on U.S. foreign policy. And I also think nobody who was being intellectually honest about those attacks would say that it was appropriate then to say they were justified. Right? Would we? Would you agree with both those statements? I would agree with both of those statements. Yes. There is a troubling line of rhetoric that I encounter regarding attacks against Israel, whereby, and again, this is tends to be from the hard left, right? That uh, the the actions taken by Hamas are justified. And that is very different to what you're saying, which is the policies of occupied Gaza have created a larger context for this. And I think it is very challenging for people to appreciate the nuance there. Well, for some reason. Well, it, it, it depends on who we're talking about, right? If, if people in Israel don't want to appreciate the nuance, I can't really. You know, that's sure. fine with me, actually. Right. right. Uh, this is not. But again, they I guess do... I mean more people outside the conflict. Okay, but the th- and the thing is, that at 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 a certain point, I don't really care what people outside the conflict think, right? Because that's not important. And then, so you know, you and I can talk about this, John. But we don't have 
uh, any real stake in this, right? We, you know, uh, it could spill over into a larger conflict. That would be terrible. Right? Yeah, I have a human stake, and you do too. That yes, this could if, expand to a wider war in the Middle East, and that would be but we're catastrophic. not going to be involved in it. And right. and this is again where the the nine eleven analogy breaks down. Yeah, there was an American response. We didn't take part in that response, right? No, Israel, I criticized have, it. Yeah, Israel doesn't have that luxury. Israelis don't have that luxury, right? right? Uh, and but there's a another element to that also, which is that. Conflict between Israelis and Palestinians is the foundational struggle of the Israeli national identity. All right. Conflict between the United States and Muslim militants, not really a foundational element of our history. Right. And so uh, this again, this is actually more important for Israel than 9-11 was for us. And I think it's very important as Americans that we keep that in mind. And because this whole this is Israel's 9-11, which, again, people have stopped saying, right? No, this has nothing to do with our history. This is about their country. Uh, and uh, they're the ones who need to be saying what the meaning of it ought to be. And if you're trying to put this in American terms, you're asking people to misunderstand this conflict. I guess I shouldn't be surprised but I am struck by the fact that you and I both I, I read the article about Netanyahu's government and his political uh, the his position politically now. And, and we both you know did a fair amount of research about kind of the facts on the ground and the chronology and you know casualty reports and everything else. And none of that even it's none of that. We couldn't get into any of that just because we have to spend the bulk of of this podcast talking about how to talk about this. And that's that just was so... the right thing to do, John. We'll have time to talk about the details. Yes, this sadly, this war will be going on next Friday. That's right. We'll, we needed to spend this time today just setting the terms of this or beginning to set the terms of this discussion. Otherwise, uh, it would be just pointless to even talk about this at all. For next week, I feel as though we will definitely be talking about this war. Yeah. And we will also be talking about developments in the labor markets in the United States or the labor sector in the United States, I should say. Um, is there anything else on your radar for next week? There will be elections in Poland. That oh, is, yes. polls will go, we'll go to, to, the to the polls. polls. So <laughs> listeners who... Don't want to hear me make that pun anymore. Might want to skip next week's episode. Uh, but that that's this, an anti-tease. That's a first of my career, Sam. That's right. So uh, this will be, uh, this is important for the ongoing Ukrainian war effort uh, and as well as, well as for uh, ongoing relations inside of the European Union. So uh, that's something that we're going to need to keep an eye on. All right. Questions, comments, suggestions, media at gmail.com. For Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody.